welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Uh, welcome to the 2023 December edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. As you guys know, the PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. Here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. First, a big thank you to Limmer Education for always sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey, and I'm here with Katie O'Connor and Michael Caduce and Dr. Kim McKenna and Dr. Piltoon. And this is our final PCRF Journal Club of 2023. And it's time for the best of educational research. So each of our panelists have been asked to select an article from the 2023 literature to share with us in this bolus research episode. So thank you all for joining us today. We wanna to remind you that you can use your chat uh, feature on your screen to type in comments, discuss things with each other, and then you can use the Q&A to bring questions into our conversation as we go. Uh, and remember, you can quote, tag, share, hashtag EMS research and at PCRF at UCLA with one of your favorite social media outlets. And remember that if you miss any of these journal clubs, clinical or educational, you can always replay past episodes from our very own YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. So here we go on the channel. You will find from last year the research we discussed in 2023, and we were live from a credit con, we were live from NEMSI, we were live from EMS World this year, and we were bringing research to this kind of hybrid format, live and remote attendees, and we plan to have more of this in 2024. This year, we discussed the, any, everything from empowering students to speak up, how to measure clinical reasoning, uh, the use of technologies like augmented reality and escape rooms. That was a fun one to talk on escape rooms in our teaching and learning. And of course, the macro view, the overall state of evidence-based education practices. So today we plan to bring that same variety, kind of unplanned, because we each selected our articles separately. But uh, when we, we looked at them together, we saw we had an unplanned kind of common theme of program and student assessment. So let's dive in. And we're going to start with the micro first. We're going to go micro to macro. So I have the most kind of specific selection. This was uh, a single study out of a single institution. The title of this is Does Allowing Access to Electronic Differential Diagnosis Support Threaten the Reliability of the Licensing Exam? And I have to say, I, I thought of Kim on this one because of her work with National Registry and um, Bill does item writing. Anybody who's done item writing, um, this and anybody who's taught also in, in the kind of high stake, stakes preparation uh, area, this is just a great article to read. It's a study on medical students out of a Canadian medical college 
and it's on the use of electronic differential diagnosis supports. So these are things, um, and actually the, the field has advanced tremendously even since this article, uh, that are used, that we see in clinical practice. So you might have seen this, you might have seen a doctor pull up their phone or an iPad and start typing in a few things as they're kind of doing their differentials. And a lot of people mistakenly think, oh, the doctor is Googling it. I can't believe they just pull up and Google something. But we know that from prior research that um, contrary to what some people think, you can't just Google it. And that prior knowledge of subject area influences the quality and accuracy, even using these kind of electronic uh, differential diagnosis support systems. Also, evidence is starting to mount that suggests that clinical reasoning skills can be actually improved with using these uh, electronic differential supports. Now, with the new advances in AI and these EDSs, as they call them, the authors ask, how do EDSs impact the performance of students in a summative exam? And is performance affected by training level? So would it differentially aid less knowledgeable students, which I think is kind of the concern that you might have. You might think, I'm not going to let them use some kind of support you know, during a high stakes test, because that means somebody who doesn't know it is going to benefit. Well, they're actually asking, and, and actually the evidence is the opposite. Uh, would it differentially aid less knowledgeable students leading to less reliability? So that's the issue is, would it threaten the liability of the test as measured by, as we all know, in the paramedic program world, discrimination index. So if you do item writing and you, and you do test item analysis, you understand that um, you want to be able to discriminate between those who are less knowledgeable versus those who are have a, a fund of knowledge and are applying it in this uh, setting. They also explore the impact of the use on overall scores and reliability. That was their general uh, purpose, was to explore the impact of these kind of differential uh, tools uh, on overall scores and then on the reliability of the test items. So at the end of the school year, they had 100 students in this medical school uh, that uh, were, you know, they uh, were recruited. So they had 50 first year students and 50 final year students, which is third year. And they randomized within those cohorts to one of two groups. The, they either used the electronic differential support or they did not. And the one that they used was called Isabel, which apparently is now, um, you know, superseded by other more advanced things like chat GPT kind of things. Um, there were 40 item tests, uh, 40 items uh, on this test. They were clinical items. So these are differential items, clinical vignettes. There were multiple choice and short answer. And uh, importantly, it was an unrestricted time, which I think will matter eventually. Uh, so note that the, in the electronic differential tool that they use, the diagnoses are ranked by relevance, not likelihood. So the student still has to think. They still have to determine the priority and differentials, even using this tool. It's almost like H's and T's, it reminds me of. Um, you know, having this as this tool that comes up with your different possibilities, and then the student still has to think it through. Okay, so the test scores, they, they were, um, let's see, so let's look at the results. So I, the statistics, I'll save you the, the stuff on statistics, but it was a typical ANOVA, then they looked at uh, reliability by looking at Cronbach's alpha. Um, the, the test scores were lower for the first year versus the final year. So we'd expect that. 
and higher with the electronic differentials versus without the electronic differential tool within each of the cohorts. So you saw in general, first year's scores were lower than, than the third years. And then within group, you saw an advantage of having the electronic uh, differential. Uh, but it wasn't for the first year group, the electronic differential was not enough the benefit of it was not enough to match the performance of the final year. So you still see that prior knowledge matters in this one. The internal consistency, um, the Kronbach's alpha, and then the reliability looking at discrimination index, that, this was the interesting part. It was the opposite for the two groups. So for year one, you had lower reliability with the electronic differentials. And for the year three students, you had much greater reliability with use of the electronic differential tool. Uh, and then finally, the test time as anticipated was double for both groups using the, the tool than those uh, not using the tool, almost double. So their conclusion was that use of an electronic differential diagnosis support tool during a licensing exam um, can improve performance and it does not um, harm test reliability. Item discrimination is actually increased in the final year students. Higher performing students gain more from the use of EDSs than the less knowledgeable students, which is kind of what we want. So my take on it is <laughs> capital letters. It's not cheating. I'm, uh, it's not cheating to use open resources. It's not cheating to use a, uh, a tool that you're going to use in clinical practice um, and that it, it actually can be a reliable uh, source of testing students' ability to use critical thinking skills and clinical reasoning skills, which is what we're going to touch on in a couple of studies today. So uh, open resource exam, especially timed ones, are very beneficial to critical thinking. And I think this was a great little micro example of that. I'd love to repeat this in EMS students. But um, I think this can easily segue into the next one, next study here. I don't know if you guys have any questions or input on that one, but I think it, it fits really nicely with what Katie actually picked, um, which is the article on uh, on assessments as well for paramedic students. Oh, sorry, my dogs are joining in. So Katie, <laughs> can you take us to your article here or you have any input on the one that I had? Yeah, no, The one of the themes that came up with the article I picked was the authenticity of the exams. And I just think that like when we are talking about tools you, you, you'll you use in the setting, labeling that as cheating is really just hurting our learners, right? If we want them to use job aids, like really important checklist during like rapid sequence induction or pharmacologically assisted innovation, they need to be using those when we're testing them. We need to be testing them on their use of these tools. So I just think that like it's a perfect segue here. Um, so anyway, the research I picked um, is actually from Ireland. Um, and that's the perceptions of educators on the assessments that they're using. And I liked it because it just actually came out this month. So it's it's right off hot off the presses. Um, but I've been hearing so much talk and I was just, um, I'm in Seattle right now talking to a bunch of different programs and the, like Medic One's program at UW about what they're going to do because there's no, in, in the spring, uh, after the spring semester, there's not going to be a national registry psychomotor test. And this idea of like, we have to have a a summative skills test and like how are we going to test students was just this conversation and found this article and I was like wow this is perfect um and Ireland's kind of already looking at this right so they're looking at how is how are the educators perceiving the way that they test 
Um, and they test similarly to our national registry where they have the university or the education program is required to be testing students in-house. And then they have a third party test from the regulator which would be the equivalent of our registry system that comes in and does this like one time test. And they have both a cognitive test, like a multiple choice questions and a um, scenario kind of to the psychomotor exam for better uh, lack of better term. But they're the big themes that they came away. And this was a qualitative study, which I also love because I just think it's we don't do nearly enough of those. Um, but uh, it also made me sad that Alex isn't here with us because I was like, oh, he's our qualitative guy. Where is he? <laughs> he's at Christmas. Sad. Um, but they had four overviews, uh, themes that came out. One was that they need to enhance authenticity. The second one was that they need to modify the assessment processes to like reevaluate the high stakes exam. And then they need to align the regulators with the education programs because there's like discrepancies in how you pass and what passing criteria is across the board. And then um, they, they need to utilize assessments as learning tools. And all of those things just like, I was like, man, I feel like this is exactly what I've been saying about our own testing and how we're like in these silos in EMS and everyone's kind of de dealing with the same problems and we should all just like share together. Um, but the big takeaway for me was the authenticity. The things they were saying was like, well, you're going to have a really different experience in a classroom with like a fake ambulance setup than you would if you were out in the field. And like, if you actually had to step over things or if you had mud or rain to deal with. And so that maybe even just like moving the location of where they're testing um, could add in more authenticity. And it seemed to kind of like this then trend towards why aren't we just evaluating them in clinical? And like, we are putting them in clinical settings. We should just use that as part of their evaluation because they're really treating mm. patients. And then that authenticity came up again with, what are we actually evaluating? And a couple of times in there, they're like, you know, we're doing better. And we've, the, the perceptions were that they had gotten away from some check mark stuff and check box style assessment in the schools, but that when they got to the regulator, it was just back to this like kind of check mark thing that didn't really make sense. And they said like, you could get points for something that on a human being, it wouldn't actually work that way. And the example they used is like um, an airway that's obstructed that even if they didn't do it in the right setting, if they at any point said, well, like the, I would have put oxygen on or would have checked the airway, they got points for it, which is not like how it works. So um, just this idea of all of the problems in a one-time high stakes testing using like one methodology, we know from education research that that's not good. And mm -hmm. they cite, this is a, if, if you haven't gotten in a lot of training in education, if you're like me, where you became a paramedic educator because you were just being good at being a paramedic and then somehow got into this world, this paper cites so many different things around assessments from like Travers's study on like um, how to use a good grading rubric um, to just some of the things like Miller's uh, pyramid of how you get competency. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really great one. I thought it was like really for people who are not well-versed in the science and theory of assessment it kind of just like lays it all out for you and they like reference really nicely um but the big takeaway is we need to be using lots of different ways of testing so that all of the problems with individual testing types we can cover those bases and really thinking about how it transfers to practice so if we are putting students in a clinical setting Let's assess them in those clinical settings that are authentic to what they're going to be doing. And we need to all as a kind of industry look at what is important 
and what are we testing? Because we test things, and this has been my like refrain for the last year about some of the things on the minimum competency matrix. Like we test a skill that doesn't really transfer, but there's nowhere we're testing skills like communication. Mm -hmm. And if we do test it, it's like one checkbox at the end where it's like interacted professionally, checkbox. But are the scenarios that we're doing, if we're doing scenario assessment, are they designed to challenge a student's ability to have a conversation? Like where yeah. in any of our regulator or testing bodies do we ever test, can they deliver the notification of a loved one dying to the family in an empathetic way? Like I couldn't find any reference to us testing that. And to me, it's a really, really important skill set. So uh, I thought this paper did a really great job of highlighting like, hey, we're making advances in testing and assessment, but we still have a long way to go. And it also really, if you are still nervous about getting rid of the registry exam, you should read this and be like, oh, wait, actually, yeah, it's a good thing that we're getting rid of it. Yeah. I think we're our own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to that, because the more we want to change the, 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 when you get a group together, the more you start hearing people go, I, I don't know, this is going to affect quality. And I went through this. So, you know, we keep going backwards to, to the same kind of uh, uh, technique, you know, of uh, checkboxing, because we have to have this, this has to be what the evidence looks like. And I think some of the things you're talking about uh, mirror what they do in nursing schools. So, it's a portfolio of performance, not one single thing, even though we have licensing verification uh, in the schools. You know, I mean, you don't see a nursing program doesn't have a high stakes end of nursing program test, right? The, there's usually, right. you know, different segments. They go to clinicals, they have labs, they have simulation, they have multiple things in that sort of, I was kind of hopeful when they started to use the term portfolio. Um, and, yeah. and it, but it turned into a, you know, a list of skills sheets and that was the portfolio. And that wasn't the really, I don't think that was really the intention. Um, and because uh, a portfolio to me, it is like a demonstration of all of your, you know, when you do credit for prior learning evaluation of a portfolio, it's, it's many things. It's not just a, a list of skills, competencies. So yeah. Yeah. They they mentioned that too. And they said that one of the quotes that they took away from directly was it kind of like, what if they're having a, like the students having a bad day. So you have a 10 minute thing that's going to determine if you get a license, you've been an yeah. amazing person for two and a half years. You have treated lots of really high stakes, critical patients in your capstone. And then you go to this registry test and 10 minutes, you had a bad day. Like, yeah. And, and they also talked about how, you know, um, in their universities there, they're testing both the paramedic and the paramedic partner. Mm -hmm. So when they work together, they're being tested as partners. And that's something that I actually introduced at Santa Rosa, that the students are not only tested as a team leader, but they're tested as a team member. And mm -hmm. we have two evaluators in the room. One is specifically evaluating their ability to be a team member. And the in Ireland right now, their, reg, their, their equivalent of registry, they don't test the team member. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that came up. They're like, hey, that's a skill set too. And yeah. that's like something a, a paramedic needs to be able to do. And so just thinking of all these things, it's like, well, yeah, you actually, like, where do we test for licensing that you can be a team member? We that's don't. That's interesting. I think of Heather Davis when you say that, and I'm sure Kim, that sounds familiar too, because Heather, uh, when they did the pilot, Dave Page and, and Heather did their, you know, they did the traveling, you know, how pilot, um, what was it when they were going to the integrated out of hospital scenario in 2015 or 17 or whatever year that was 
um, they, they talked about team membership. It was very challenging for them to do an evaluation of team membership. So they ended up landing on this other version. So I can't see the chat. I don't know if you can see the chat. If I pick up the chat, I'm afraid I'm going to lose. Oh, it's just people here. saying hello right now. So. Oh, good. Hi, everyone. <laughs> great. Thanks, Katie. That was great stuff. Um, we're going to so say, if, yeah, go I ahead. Gotta, in reference to, and since Katie's up in the Seattle area, does the, when I was there, and this was back in uh, 2010, and uh, they, they would have two students on the medic unit at the same time so the they could see how the students performed in both lead and their team lead position so i don't know if that is still the process uh, matter of fact they did all their clinicals locations two at a time at the in 2010 when i was there um we didn't really talk too much about their clinicals we were talking about their um the what they're planning on doing for their psychomotor evaluation towards the end of their program but mm -hmm. It, it's just really interesting because uh, they have like um, like a Thurston County when I was there, they ha their interns have to get 10 field human live intubations during internship, which in like Los Angeles when I was there, they had to get two intubations and they could both be simulation and they could be at any point of the program. And this, the difference there to me is astounding. Like I was talking to some of the medics who've uh, it, in medic one, they've done 60 human intubations during paramedic school, in addition to all of the simulation ones that they've done, which is countless. And it just rings to me, it's just so true how we talk about this, like we have a national registry test, and we have a national certification, but realistically in the US, we have wildly different paramedic programs. And even one accredited program is so wildly different from another accredited program. I just think we need to be looking at what our standards are. And do we actually have standards or we just have these like umbrella things? And how long have we been living under the umbrella that we like probably could do a better job here? Um, because, you know, 60 live human innovations is clearly different than two simulated ones. Well, and remember, it, at least in the uh... In the city of Seattle, they limit the total number of credentialed paramedics. That's right. And they I do mean, that intentionally. So they make mm -hmm. sure that their paramedics are maintaining a high level of proficiency. And that not matter of fact, for example, unless again, things have changed, they there are no paramedics on the uh, engine companies. They only come on the medic unit. So that it's there's a big difference there in the sense of of making sure the system isn't overpopulated with paramedics. So that allows them to do that kind of intensity. Yeah, I think yeah. Mike's paper is about like systems and system resources. So like we're like rolling right into this. Like, how do all of these different systems end up with the same? Like, we all are paramedics, right? At the end of the day, that's the term we're using. So. Yeah, actually, and that's a great way. segue into uh, Mike's paper, Medical Directors, Facilities, Finances. And we're going to be looking closer at this one next year, too, when we go to CreditCon and talk to Mike Miller. But Mike Caduce, take it away. Thank you, Megan. And yes, great transition, Katie, and it rang true to me. We've got different results at the end of our paramedic programs. And this study, um, I wanted to toot the horn of the great authors that I got to work with. This is the first publication that I've had. And so I wanted, as people are thinking holiday season and New Year's resolutions, always a great opportunity for the um, growing and flourishing researchers to set the goal of 
publishing your first paper. Um, it's work, but it's fun work. And um, getting that first manuscript under your belt is a huge accomplishment. So um, a shout out to the other authors. This was a partnership with NREMT and COE to look at the RAM, the resource assessment matrix. So this is an evaluation of all those surveys that you have to have your students do, you have to have your program directors do, your faculty, your community engagement um, committees. All, it's a three. The RAM is a 360. So it's all the survey data that you collected. Well, we collected all that data from 2018 and evaluated it. Um, so all those surveys that you think you submit to COE as program directors that you wonder where it all goes, here's where it goes. Uh, so we did an evaluation of that. And the reason we really started this was because there's, despite the same standard, right, everybody sort of has to meet the, the accreditation requirements, yet we still have varying degrees of what we would consider, um, you know, results. We have different pass rates. We have, as we've discussed, we have different just clinical competencies when folks graduate. So we wanted to evaluate whether or not some of these deficiencies in the RAM might be playing a part in that. So in essence, that's what we did. We looked at all the data from 2018. Um, you have to go back far enough where people have had a full certification cycle. So we know that when you graduate paramedic school, you have two years to certify, and we wanted the most complete set of data. Um, we also, again, it takes time to get all those RAM surveys done and get them to submitted to COE. So we went back to 2018 to look at this. It also gets rid of some of the co-founders with COVID. So we were appreciative of that. Um, so there were 626 programs in 2018 that submitted their RAM data. That's 100% of the programs at the time. And that encompasses about 17,000 paramedic students uh, over that took a program throughout that year. Of those, 23% reported at least one RAM deficiency. Um, for those unfamiliar with the resource assessment matrix, anything that doesn't, any question that doesn't score an 80% is considered a deficiency. A program director has to report that deficiency as well as an action plan for how they're going to improve that deficiency. Um, the probably the the biggest takeaway from this was we we did a thematic analysis. So all the comments from the program directors and all the action plans we themed. So of those 23%, which comes out to be about 143 um, programs that reported at least RAM deficiency, there were actually 406 deficiencies. You can have more than one. Um, so you can, there's several different categories. There's 10 actually, and you can be deficient in up to all 10 of them. So we went through each deficiency and themed it. Now, the statistical part of it um, showed us that there is a lower completion rate in RAM deficient programs. Um, it, again, I think that's a, a takeaway that's probably got more nuance than anything. I think it's easy to think in the mind that like, well, of course, a program that doesn't have enough resources is going to underperform a program that does. Um, but I think the again, the true meat and potatoes or the true takeaway from this study is the theming that we did to say, okay, where are the deficient categories? What are paramedic programs routinely deficient in um, across this country? Um, and so that's exactly what we did. Ironically, one of the biggest deficiencies that fell across all 10 categories was insufficient data, which meant that the surveys were not completed. We looked into that because if you're not completing the RAM survey, the question sort of leads to like, what else is not getting done in your paramedic program? Um, and it was paramedic turnover. That's a common theme of this podcast as well, uh, is that we have paramedic program turnover rates, which mean that the surveys, the RAM surveys never get sent out. They never get given to students. And we think that's a 
really big area for future improvement and an area where programs can work together, accreditors can work together to say, okay, when you take over a new program, what knowledge, training, education do you get that you need to know that you need to be sending these things out? So um, we thought that was an interesting area. In terms of the top three categories where we saw the most efficiencies, it was in medical directors, um, engagement facilities, and financial resources. Um, I think as we've discussed over the last several years on this podcast, those things probably are not unusual for programs. Um, when it came to medical director turnover and breakdown, the majority of the comments made by program directors were there was limited interaction with the program or the students. So if the students were taking the survey, they didn't get to see their medical director frequently. Um, faculty noted that they didn't see their medical director frequently. Um, the you know, community advisories noted they didn't see the medical director. Um, so there were, for facilities, um, lack of classroom space and or equipment seemed to be a consistent theme. Um, the, one of the benefits of doing a thematic analysis is that one comment can mean lots of things. So somebody may write lack of classroom space. Another person may write that they had lack of skills room space. Others may write lack of equipment or equipment not working. Technically, those are two different things. Broken equipment means you do have it. Um, so we had to use a couple of broader categories for these, but lack of classroom space and or equipment was a very common theme in paramedic programs. Um, ironically, lack of lab time was another one, and temperature management, too hot or too cold in the classroom, was a common theme that came up um, for facilities. So I think sometimes we think to ourselves, some of these low-hanging fruit items are the easiest to fix first, the things that don't require a ton of money and resources. So classroom, like temperature management, seems like one where we could, you know, adjust the AC or the heat. Um, if we're not paying for the AC on the weekends, but we have EMT classes or paramedic classes, I guess, going on the weekends, easy things to fix. Uh, and then the top third theme was financial resources. Uh, lack of equipment also fell into this one. Um, lack of faculty or faculty development. And then lack of scholarship or contact with the financial aid office was another one. And again, we start looking at how do we fix a workforce shortage Federal funding and state funding is a great way to help, you know, sh um, shore up that shortcoming. So that was something that we thought, gosh, there's probably some opportunity there in the future to work on. Um, we also themed the action plans. So the action plan program director for any deficiency has to list their action plans. Um, and this is a really sort of a, a really interesting perspective into the medical director, into the program director's thoughts. Um, so it was really interesting to read everyone's comments made here. Um, in terms of action plans for medical director involvement, um, there were two that seemed to seem like the same thing, but they were very clearly delineated in the comments by program directors, which was seek to hire a new medical director or speak to the medical director about program involvement. And I think it's easy to think, well, our program, our medical director is just not involved, but have, does the medical director know what the expectations are? Do they know what involvement in a paramedic program looks like? Um, so maybe having the conversation is a good way to start that. And I appreciated the program directors delineated their comments that way. In terms of facilities, there was an interesting uh, breakdown here as well. Some comments were advocate for a new building, and others were having a plan to actually build a new building or get more clinical space or more equipment. Um, so I think, uh, interestingly enough, again, there's really not a standard on what a paramedic classroom needs to look like, though the data has been around since about the 50s that we don't learn well when it's too hot or too cold. Um, so, you know, implying that into our classroom. And then uh, financial resources, a lot of this came down to more laboratory space, in increasing staffing. Um, uh, ironically, 
little in terms of how to communicate with a financial aid office, which it seems like it was a deficiency. Um, if we're working at a hospital-based program, maybe there's not even a financial aid office. So then, you know, community colleges typically do have those. So then you bring up a whole new challenge for a program director to try and determine, you know, how do I contact the financial, how do we get a financial aid office? So um, interestingly enough, I think one of the things that we saw was collaboration is really going to be key. If you're a program that has a high-performing program and you're doing well on your resource assessment matrix, that's key. We also had some questions that came up where there was a lot of um, uh, the program director comments noted that there was probably discrepancies on what they thought the question meant. Um, There's a couple questions that ask about like field trips and getting out into the community. And that's maybe not something we do a lot of in paramedic training, but it, confusion over the question. So we've worked with COE since they were the authors on this as well to do some updates to the RAM survey. So some of those questions are a little bit more clear in terms of what they're actually asking. Um, overall, we also noted that there was a medical director involvement in the classroom and physician interaction in the field and clinical setting was two of the top five themes. So continuing to have physician involvement in EMS education continues to be incredibly important and something we need to advocate, not just that our medical directors in our programs, but their colleagues in the emergency department in the different clinical sites are engaging with the students while they're there, um, ensuring that the paramedic students are really seeing that true oversight nature that comes with the delegated medical authority. Yeah, interesting um, to do a thematic analysis and really see comments from program directors and really see the detail that some program directors put into their comments. Um, but overall, it was an interesting opportunity to really look at where all the resource assessment matrix surveys go and that, that actually stuff that does get evaluated and does get looked at. It's such a powerful thing to be, and it's so specific, like you said, everything down to ventilation in the classroom, anything that can support learning. I, I just want to throw out there that I think the results in you know, my opinion, also indicate an extreme degree of EMS educator siloism. Um, I do think that uh, things like, you know, if you don't realize that, you know, how especially for those like you said in colleges, and there's anywhere between sixty-eight and seventy-two percent of the programs are in a college, a higher education institution, a college, traditional college setting, um, mostly community colleges. And if you don't know about Perkins funding, if you don't know about the program review process, if you don't know about counseling services, financial aid, all of those things, um, that indicates siloism because all of that is part of it. And I, I'm completely guilty of the first five years of my 21 years at a community college have been were spent just trying to figure out how to teach in my little corner of the building and the minute I joined curriculum committee, and as part of a tenure process, you actually have to do things that are outside, join curriculum committee, join a scholarship committee, do something that steps out and, you know, or with other allied health programs, suddenly it became a whole different world. And suddenly every single year when we, we tie outcomes to you know, Perkins funding and strong workforce funding in California, we get strong workforce funding. Um, I mean, the thing about space too, I'm, I'm sure Katie can comment on this because she does a lot of creative things with simulation and things. How, really think closely about how space utilization. Mm -hmm. um, 
you oh don't need gosh, a giant <laughs> room, right? I don't, yeah. you know, these people get so, sometimes start, well, we need this giant room. It's like the giant room is not what I need. I just need a small area that we can set up really well for a breakout area. We'll take that little boiler room at the end temporarily to run a simulation downstairs in. We don't need dedicated, you know, multiple large spaces. You know, we can we can adjust. So I, I, that part, uh, and and some people, to be fair, don't have the space. So, um, but but it is. You and I talked creative. about that at length, Megan. The <laughs> <laughs> space utilization at our shared space, because like it was, we had rented this space that was huge, and it wasn't used at all at night, and it wasn't used at week on weekends, and we were paying rent for this space, and we we're like, oh man, that money could be better used somewhere else. Is there a way that we can just use the space better? Um, in general too, like thinking about resources, but the, I was clapping when you said that we're in silos. I think one of the really cool things, and I came from the East coast, Mike came from, or Michael came from the uh, Midwest. And then we both ended up on the West coast and just that timing that worked out, we were able to do so many cool, new, interesting things and change stuff because we were just bringing this collective knowledge to one place. And then of course we yeah. ended up siloed in our own, in our own house, but it was amazing <laughs> yeah. that like, wow, things moved really quickly when we both got there because it was all this influx of ideas and different perspectives. And if we could just do that, like you're always talking about building a community practice in EMS in the US, and we just need a way to do that. And I wish one of the bodies, like the registry or NAMT or something could help us because I feel like we're all struggling to create a community of educators. Bill? I Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that I found... Uh, over my career sometimes we also become very fixed well we've always used this room this is a room i'm most comfortable in you know versus moving moving it somewhere else and and sometimes then to i've been in places with great facilities but they don't go out of their way to use make the utilization of all that space that they have and uh it's <clears throat> it's a shortcoming and i think sometimes it's a shortcoming of us i think a lot of times we have to look in the mirror and say that the problem is not we're not uh not someone else it's us not utilizing what we really have in front yeah. of us and, uh, I, I have to laugh though <laughs> i'm thinking of dennis edgerly have you ever heard his story about running a simulation at the essex motel uh and ask pat tritt about getting a a, a reimbursement request for 45 dollars for <laughs> for, a, for a motel that he got to run some simulations and i thought one of those you know rents by the hour kind of thing and and he ran simula i thought it was brilliant i thought that do, was brilliant. do you mean you've never <laughs> you've never worked a paramedic unit running out of a hotel no, I think he did it with his education program. He brought well, the students there for, to run I've simulations. For plenty of that was hilarious. Yeah, I've worked places where we ran units out of hotels that we rented, and they were not oh. the nicest hotels either. So, yeah, I just thought that was brilliant running running simulations out of a out of a nearby hotel room. So, well, great, Kim. Do you have a comment? Well, I was just going to to speak to what Katie said and to what you said about, you know, being in silos. One of the things we did some focus groups with program directors um, related to their experiences through COVID. And one of their big enablers, one of the things that really helped them was when they had a community of practice that sort of came together. So in some cases, it was a pre-existing state EMS group. 
in other cases, they just sort of formed it and they were able to kind of support each other and say, well, here's here's how I handled this at my college. And, and so I think just on a day-to-day basis, it can be hugely helpful, but in a crisis, it can really kind of help you get through the tough times. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well done, Michael. And, yeah. And one other, one other comment, one other comment, Michael. Yes. Excellent on getting that published. The one other thing I want to talk about is, is that if you pay people, you can have expectations of them. And I'm a big believer that there shouldn't be such thing as a volunteer medical director. And I think that, and there shouldn't be such things as volunteer preceptors. Mm -hmm. If you pay people, you can expect stuff in return. So I'm a big person that we've got to find a way to pay people if we want them to do stuff. And just asking, for example, a nurse, in the obstetrics unit to, hey, would you mind if the student tags along with you? That's really a burden on their day. And uh, it's a challenge. So I, I think if you there pay is. people, then you can expect stuff in return. <laughs> Great. All right, we're gonna uh, turn now to Kim's selection. So Kim, why don't you tell us about your selection for this year? Uh, sure thing. Uh, I'll add one more thing about facilities. Um, my first training center, at my last job, had a ridiculously small space. And so my office was actually quite large because it had been an administrator office before. So it was always a lab breakout station, <laughs> you know, and, and when the weather was nice, one of the stations was always outside. So I think you're right. You do have to be as creative as you can. So uh, my study actually to move moving on uh, was led by Mark Terry. It was a national registry study and it was done uh, kind of as a preparatory step Uh, The registry is now working on a continued competency agenda for the future, which uh, draft of that probably will be coming out within the next six months or or so for people to be able to review. So they did use a modified Delphi approach uh, with four rounds of surveys. They had 14 participants, uh, which ironically, only two of them were educators uh, to current educators. Um, to generate content, to rate it, and then to prioritize it through rankings. So their goal was to refine the understanding of continued competency for EMS clinicians in the U.S. and establish priorities for developing competency assessments. They define continuing competency as the maintenance of foundational and acquisition of new knowledge and skills. So in their four rounds, what they did, uh, the first question that they posed was, what evidence or indicators of continued competency in EMS clinicians should be assessed or verified? And uh, they, at the end of that round, then they divided it into what was content versus what was process. And then in their next round, they further asked, how do we demonstrate continued competence in the EMS clinician? And they also prioritized the content items in that round. And then they had another round where they discussed the results and they ordered and prioritized the results from their process items using a Likert type scale. And then their final round, they ranked the list of process items. So in their results, they boiled down 70 content items into 21 themes and then had 12 that they that were their final ranked themes. Um, and so I don't think most of these are gonna be too surprising to people. Their, their themes were airway respiration ventilation, patient assessment, management of time critical diagnoses, 
information processing and critical decision-making, pharmacology, maintenance of entry-level competence, interpersonal communication, Katie will go, yay, <laughs> care of pediatrics, maintenance of psychomotor skills, care of special populations, situational awareness, and thankfully provider safety and wellness. And they had a lot of discussion about where like provider safety and wellness should land, you know, should it be in the competencies or shouldn't it? And um, the more they thought about it, uh, it sounded from their discussion that they felt like it really did, it was an important competency for people to have to be able to retain their careers in EMS. Plus some of that, you know, is, you know, if you um, have, for mental health, your compassion is not going to be that great. So, um, so then the next thing were their processes. So they reduced 35 process items down to 14 themes, and they ended up with 10 final ranked themes. So the first was knowledge assessment based on evidence-based practice. So, uh, you know, studies like the one that Katie, you know, mentioned, you know, they're going to be having to accumulate this evidence, hopefully to come up with best practices. Uh, second one was performance-based rather than time-based assessment. So in other words, uh, moving away from your um, requirements being hours-based, you know, time with butts in seats, excuse my language, uh, rather than looking at, you know, starting to look at units of education where you've demonstrated competence. Um, that number three would be that you should evaluate knowledge and skills. Number four was performance improvement over time. So not looking at competence in one moment in time, but looking at it over time. You see some themes that are tying in with your earlier, earlier articles here. Uh, number five was frequent shorter knowledge evaluations. The sixth one was testing important skills with performance assessments. Um, the seventh was incorporating continued competency into daily life. Um, so again, looking at, well, that'll come up in, in the later ones. Uh, number eight, integrating continued competency into the CE process. Number nine, skills verification at the local level. And the last one was using clinical documentation as a method to verify continued competency. So, you know, if somebody's already demonstrating competence in a particular area, is there a need to really pull them in and do a, you know, simulated test? Probably not. But the challenge remains for many programs to be able to um, document that, to be able to track that in a really meaningful way. Um, they concluded that whatever processes are developed should really be led at a national level so that there would be consistency, uh, some consistency across the country. Um, but they also acknowledge the difficulty of, gain, you know, of getting that consistency throughout all of the areas of, of the country. And that you would need to still have some local requirements because you know, some of them are gonna be equipment-based, different protocols uh, based upon different needs in a geographic area and those kinds of things. So that sort of sums it up, but I think it's kind of interesting that that some of these um, themes that they landed on did kind of cross over into what Megan was talking about and, and Katie were was talking about as well. And I particularly, in Megan's article, one of the things I really liked that, that 
came up a lot when we were doing continued competency in the department that I worked in was sort of an argument that some people had that, you know, during testing that the crews shouldn't be able to use their protocol app. And I was like, but we want them to know where to find things when they're on a call, right? And so why wouldn't you get them as familiar as possible with those resources before they have to use them in a high stress situation? So anyway, it's an interesting article. It's going to be sort of interesting to see where this lands because, you know, these are sort of discrete things in terms of content uh, and not entrustable professional activity. Yeah. You know, we've talked about before <laughs> on this podcast. So uh, it'll just really be interesting to see where this project lands. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Um, it, it's interesting, that whole idea of the students are starting to notice the use of tools by other people in healthcare. So they go to the hospital clinicals and they see all these things. It used to be just posters on the walls. Now it's apps and, mm -hmm. and other job aids and tools. And, and they're seeing that, you know, even in critical situations, an anesthesiologist, a nurse, a, a physician is using that tool. They're doing the cross checks, they're doing everything else. And then they go out into the field and, and they're, you know, um, penalized by the preceptor for using a tool or they're told they, you know, you know, no, no, you don't need to do all of that, mm -hmm. you know, stuff that all that safety stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, while I agree with you, Bill, that, you know, uh, preceptors need to be paid. I think the more important is we need to a better connection. They need to be faculty and then we need to pull them all together, you know, everybody together into this community of educational practice. And I would add educator researchers so that we're always looking at how to improve. Not my way is the way to, to do it. So we see a lot of variability in the field where I am. And it's uh, it's a really hard thing to fight. It's, it's a really difficult thing to kind of, uh, and not fight, but, you know, to deal with with students and they come in and they're like, look, I just want to get through it. I'm not going to go against my preceptor. I just want to get my license. I want to get done, get my license. So I'm just going to do what my preceptor tells me to do. And, and, you know, we'll have discussions and say this, but it's, it's a little bit more challenging. It's a very different educational model than other health professions. But sure. I feel like it's still, um, there are still some of those same issues that you read about, especially for like new graduates when they come in, you know, eating mm -hmm. your young has been a, a theme yeah. in for many years in medicine, it's the same way. So our problems are different because they're, they're so remote, like, you know, the, where we practice is, mm -hmm. is remote from like a mothership really you know so true and so there's not as much oversight so that's the really the biggest difference I think kind of I feeds do think into we create some of our director. own problems too though mm -hmm. like is it be the way that we still teach like EMR and EMT is very technician and then when they get to paramedic we're like you should think critically why aren't you thinking critically why aren't you using a job aid and a differential diagnosis tool but in EMT they were like scene safe BSI I approach airway I must hold the head like so I think we're creating our own issue in the way that we have this weird distinction between EMTs doing checklists and paramedics should be critically thinking, and we don't have a great transition bridge there in that learning style. Very true. And also anatomy and physiology, um, I've noticed this, they, a lot of us have anatomy and physiology requirements before going into paramedic 
and uh, the the lack of appreciation for for why you need to know anatomy and physiology before you get to paramedic is only realized after they get there, it seems like. And then they come back and go, oh, I guess I was supposed to remember what all of this, you know, action potential stuff meant. And I, I thought it was, you know, about advanced skills and it's really not. It's about advanced assessment. I like your, I don't, I wonder if <clears throat> the A&P courses have been evaluated. Huh. And and you hit a I think that nerve of mine well, for sure. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. Is are the is the generic A and P course truly preparing the student for what they need to know? And I really have found there's a big disconnect. And it's again, some of them just take the quickest online class they can to mm -hmm. get the credit and get out of it. And there's not the meaningful connection with why what we're learning here applies to what we're gonna get within the paramedic program. And I think that there, it, it hurts us because I don't think they're coming really with preparation in anatomy and physiology and pathology that could be all easily covered in, in those areas and, and should be, and it should be related to what they need to know to practice within our field. And of course, beyond that so they have a deeper understanding of how it connects to everything else. But yeah, and I think our field meaning medicine, not our field meaning field medicine, um, I, I, because I think that interprofessional practice is so important that uh, that's the, the place that where you can get a real, very simply get a, a dose of interprofessionalism in, is in a human anatomy and physiology course that that's offered for allied health providers. You'd be sitting next to people taking the requirement for medical assisting, for you know, radiologic technician, for vocational nursing, for whatever. I agree. I agree with you a hundred percent. But the professor and the curriculum needs to reflect what they're preparing them for. Yeah, case based, basically, um, which I think a lot of allied health, um, you know, um, related A and P actually books are have gone to more case based um, learning and application. All right, Bill, I actually put in here, Bill didn't select an article, but he sent a couple of great uh, quotes that I put in a couple of slides as words from the wise, because I asked him to look, but you've been doing, uh, explain to me what's going on here. You've been looking back at a lot of really interesting articles. You were trying to find one, I think, on Freedom House that was written in the Journal of Trauma in 1970 or something um and i think you landed it you found it and and you found a few other things that have some interesting connections so tell me about these two quotes that you sent so <clears throat> after uh listening to the uh american sirens um i had always known that freedom house exists but <clears throat> i wasn't sure the the author talked about the history of of ambulance services and stuff. And I can't, and what it was, I says, I remember that a little differently, but I didn't know. So that launched me on my quest to look at our history. And I've been looking from 1900 to the present day, but really focusing on 1900 to 1965 because, or 66, because the white paper was supposed to answer our questions as it related to the future of EMS. And I think that there's such really important information in these early documents. Uh, one of the things I think that people don't give credit, the American College of Surgeons, since the late 20s, 
was very interested in emergency medical services and how people were delivered to the hospital. And they clearly understood that if someone received the right care at the scene, that they would arrive at the hospital in better care so they could survive their injury. And uh, I just saw a thing the other day that they, they said that ar archaeologists looking at uh, mummies have found that the mummies had actually had injuries to them and that they were healed and repaired. So there's a chance of who knows how far back emergency medicine really goes. You know, it, it could be really farther back than we think. So I think that that's something to be aware of. So um, this quote, which I happen to like, talks about um, the idea that if we're, we better train the personnel, they should get not only the higher pay, but I like the improved standing in the community, that they really should be looked up to, um, you know, as a profession with real prestige. And I think that that varies a great deal currently. And you can see this was from 1966. And the next quote, I think, is just a few years later, if you have that one. Yeah, this <clears> one, sure you can you tell the that timeline because they use he. <laughs> A lot. In yes. Oh, Kim, there's Kim a, and there's, I noticed that one like right of, away. <laughs> there's a lot of interesting things that that um, that you notice uh, right now. I'm actually reading the book uh, dealing with the first female surgeon on the ambulance in New York City, and uh, she be, got that position in 1900. And the the language and the way they were treated and everything is absolutely uh, phenomenal. That that. It's still we have a long way to go, but it, it's not just even this <clears throat> this uh, piece that I found here that it talks about. And there, the references are there, and I'll make sure that I put them also in the notes so people can see them there if they want to look up the references. But there is a rich amount of information about our past that I think that we're not tapping into like we should. And there's answers already in our past to problems we're dealing with right now. And it's very, one of the interesting things is, uh, for example, intubation training. Even Peter Saffer, who was an anesthesiologist, couldn't get the other anesthesiologists to help him teach paramedics intubation. They weren't willing to do it. So actually, Freedom House, for example, did not have intubation at their beginning. It was probably not until the 70s before they actually started doing intratracheal intubation because he couldn't get the kind of training that he felt was necessary for them to, to have to, to really be the, the kind of clinicians they needed to be in the field to take care of sick people. But the past also talked about what our future should be. And some of the things, like I didn't put all the quotes in there, they talked about the education of the educator and how important it was that physicians should be actively involved in the education of EMS providers, but that the educators that are from the profession should be trained at the collegiate level. And there's a, a and again, I failed to grab the reference in time for this, but I ran across it late where I was looking for stuff, but it specifically talked that if we as a profession are going to take over our responsibility, we need to be well prepared. You've heard me talk about this before that I think that uh, if we really want to grow and change and be able to accept these changes, we need to have that ability. And, and I think that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's plenty of educational programs out there at the collegiate level that would prepare people well 
for teaching in the classroom and when you could easily blend it together. So there's not a need to reinvent the wheel. There's a reason, there's a need for us to establish a standard. So I know we're running out of time and so I don't wanna do anything other than wish everyone a happy and safe holiday. And I hope that uh, none of you choose to use 911 during this holiday season and you let all of those providers stay home. Great. Thank you, Bill. And thank you to all our panelists. If you have any final words, say them now. Otherwise, thank you, everyone. And, and a huge thank you to all of you for listening and joining us and going to our YouTube channel. Remember, we're going to have a lot more in 2024. Warm up that data, do those resource assessments, <laughs> get everything ready for 2024, because we will be back and we've already got a plan. The first one is going to be on meditation. So meditation and paramedic programs, that'll be fun. So PCRF Education Research Journal Club will join you again Friday, January 26, 2024. And don't forget Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Antonio Fernandez, Monday, January 8th, they will be joining us with the PCRF Clinical Journal Club in 2024. Remember to join us live. You can register at prehospitalcare.org and you can also go and visit that YouTube channel and listen to some of the past archives. And we will see you in 2024. Happy and safe new year to everyone. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.